Welcome to the weekly podcast for City Chapel at Slaughter Creek, the world's okayest church, right here in Austin. Get to know us better at citychapelchurch.com. We're so glad that you joined us today and hope you enjoy the message. We'll read about that here in a couple of weeks, but there's really two things that shift Habakkuk's thoughts in his mind and his perspective. And one is this experience he has in chapter three, and he writes about it. But two is this, this, this chapter two, which to me, chapter two is just a bunch of revelation, which is not incredibly positive. Uh, There are, there's the wonderful quote in the beginning, which we spent about three years preaching on um, Habakkuk chapter two, verse four, that says the just shall live by faith, right? And that's a powerful um, bomb that God drops on Habakkuk. And I imagine that that like, starts to open up his mind. But then God spends a number of verses, and we're here getting toward the end of these, where he gives him five woes. Five woes. Uh, woe is what it sounds like. It's bad. It's woe to him who, woe to him who, woe to him. And, and there's a progression to these woes. There's a movement to them. He starts off very personal. The first woe, which we spoke on a few weeks ago, is woe to him who builds his house through injustice. So your house is usually metaphorical of your life. And so it's very personal. Woe to him who, who builds his own life through injustice and violence. So God is saying, Habakkuk, I, I know that you see a lot of injustice happening around you. I know that you see a lot of people who seem to be prospering. They're building very nice homes. They're building very nice lives. Their kids are going to the best colleges. They seem to be doing well. But actually, God says, woe to him who does all of that, who builds their life through injustice. In other words, on principles that are not biblical principles, but principles of the world. So God says, actually, it's not going to work out well for them. Woe to them who builds their life on injustice. And then he moves forward a little bit. He says, woe to him who builds his house up high on a perch in order to escape the people below. Now, this is a little bit further out. So there's your life, and now there's your family. Now it's like you're trying to shelter stuff that is yours away from the people that you have affected. Uh, that, that's actually what he says. He says, you've ruined many people. And so the, the idea that you can ruin many people, that you can that you can sow and not reap, the idea that you can treat people a certain way and then retreat to some kind of... Um, secure life that's sheltered from the results of your decisions, that, that, that doesn't work. And so it's moving outward now from simply uh, a man's life to a man's family. And then last week we preached on the passage where he says, woe to him who builds cities and towns through violence, through bloodshed, through injustice. Now we're moving up. Now not only is, is a man's life being built on the wrong thing, but his family is being built on the wrong thing, and now his country, his cities and his towns are being built on the wrong thing. And today we're going to step even a little bit further beyond that. We're going to look at verse 15 of Habakkuk chapter 2. He says, Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors. Notice the, the movement. Started with an individual's heart, moved to his family, moved to his country. Now this is how he's treating his neighbors or these neighboring countries. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors. That's alcoholic drink, by the way. Pouring it from the wineskin until they are drunk. So that he can gaze on their naked bodies. <laughs> Verse 16. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. 
Now it is your turn, exclamation point. God's shouting at him at this point. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you. And your, <laughs> how many know what goes around comes around? <laughs> the cup of the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you for you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. All right, so let's jump into this one. This is, this is just going to be fun. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring from the wineskin so much that they become drunk in order that he might look on their nakedness. NIV, naked bodies. This is kind of weird, right? So on the face of this, obviously God is against drunkenness. Uh, this is throughout Scripture, actually. Uh, the New Testament goes so far as to say that no drunkard will enter into heaven. That no one who practices drunkenness will enter into heaven. doesn't matter what prayer you prayed, what church you went to. No one who practices drunkenness. There we go. That, that's, there's your altar call right there. Let's go ahead and let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. Let's confess. Come on, Austin. Let's confess. Not Austin behind the camera, but Austin the city. I'm talking. Hey, if the shoe fits, Austin, let's. I'm ready to pray with you, brother. It's, it's a serious thing, drunkenness. And it's so serious that God uses it here as a metaphor for something else. He's using it as a, because all of these things are metaphorical, right? Building your house, it's a metaphor for your life. Um, putting, building your house up on a tree or in a perch, that's a metaphor for trying to escape uh, the, the results of, of your sin. All of these things are metaphorical in nature. And this one is metaphor, metaphorical as well, but, but the very thing is also bad. And it's so bad, God's using it as a metaphor for something else. So he says, look, it's not good to give wine to people to the, to the point that they're drunk. Once again, it's okay to drink wine. Jesus turned water into wine. But to drink until you're drunk, this is the issue. And he says it's not good to intoxicate other people in order to take advantage of them. To look at their naked bodies. So obviously we know that pornography is wrong, and this is like another way in which pornography is wrong. Um, but even this, this is a metaphor. So, so it's good to keep that in mind. And as I was studying this passage, I'm like, this is really weird. How does this apply 21st century Americans, except for actual pornography and actual drunkenness. If we want to talk about that, we could have a sermon about that pretty easily. Um, but this is not exactly what God's trying to get across. He's not, he's not confronting the Babylonians specifically for alcoholism or pornography. Rather, he's using these things as a metaphor for something even bigger. And so as I was studying this, uh, a passage came to my mind. Probably one of the strangest stories in Scripture— uh, where somebody did just this. This is exactly what they did. Uh, you've heard of Noah with the animals and all the cute little animals that got on the ark. And um, they were on the ark for 40 days and 40 nights. It rained, it poured. What you don't know is that they actually stayed on the ark for another, like, uh, they were on for a total of nine months. They're floating around with animals, with Noah and his family, uh, his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth and their wives, and whatever children they might have had. They were all on this boat. Now, we got to go to, to is it in Arkansas that we went and saw? Or no, it was in Kentucky, the other Arkansas. 
Um, uh, we went <laughs> the one up higher. Uh, we went and saw the, the where they rebuilt the ark, and uh, it's just massive. It's absolutely huge. It's awesome to see. But to think of living in there for nine months with a whole bunch of animals and the smell and the lack of oxygen and whew, and trying to feed those things every day. I mean, it was it was it was pretty incredible the way that they put it all together and let you see how it could actually work. Well, Noah and his family have been in the ark for nine months, and then. In Genesis chapter 9, they land on Mount Ararat. They're on top of a mountain. The waters receded. God opens the door. They come out. God uh, displays a rainbow for the first time in all of history. And God says, God makes a covenant with Noah, with his children, and with the land, with all living creatures. He makes a covenant. He'll never flood the earth again. It's a beautiful chapter. Well, right in the middle of this beautiful chapter is this weird story that just kind of creeps up on you. Here you have God making a covenant with them. And he's speaking to them. And then all of a sudden, right in the middle of the chapter, Noah plants a vineyard. And then Noah gets drunk. This is like the only time in all of Scripture where somebody who's called righteous or holy, where he's recorded as being drunk. So it's very odd. You read this passage, you're like, wait a minute, I thought Noah was a servant of God. He was a follower. He was righteous, Hebrews says, in his generation. He was righteous. So how is this guy getting wasted? Well, he gets <laughs> drunk, and he goes and lays down in the tent. The Bible says he's naked. I don't know, do we have any little kids? No, we don't? Okay. So the Bible says he's naked, and then Ham, his son, his youngest son, rolls up and goes into the tent. Something happens in the tent. Then Ham comes out, tells his brothers about it. And his brothers come back, and his, and his two older brothers, Japheth and Shem, they get a blanket and put it on each of their shoulders. They walk backwards into the tent and lay it on top of their father to cover him up. And then Noah wakes up. And Noah wakes up, and he's got you know, the world's first hangover, apparently, in Scripture. And he's angry. And when he, the Bible says he realizes what, Shem, what Ham had done to him, he curses Ham's fourth son. Ham's got four kids, and he curses his fourth son named Canaan, that he's going to be a servant of the other brothers of Ham all of his days and all of his generations, all of his kids and grandkids and so on and so forth. It's a very strange scripture. And then it just the Bible just kind of goes on. And then it's like, oh, no, 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 no. It's like, what is going on here? And so in order to try to understand Habakkuk chapter 2, I began studying Genesis chapter 9. Begin studying this this odd story. And there's a couple things you need to know. One is nobody really knows what happened. And that's just the truth. And so we're not going to solve that here between 10.43 and 11.30 a.m. on Sunday morning. I'm not going to attempt to do that. What I will do is I'll, is, is I'll give you some of the options that uh, are the primary thoughts behind what the Scripture is talking about. And, and, and there's, uh, there's four main ideas. I'll start with the fourth one, the last one, which is probably the furthest from the truth. But it's the one that I have heard growing up. It's actually the one that's probably more accepted in evangelical circles because it's the most sanitized one. And, and anyway, so th this is the one that I heard growing up is that, okay, Noah got drunk and he made a mistake, right? Uh, you, you're not supposed to get drunk. Um, meanwhile, then he got a little silly, got undressed, then he was, you know, laying down, walking around, doing things in his house, in his tent, naked, right? And then Ham rolls up on him and is like, oh, dad's naked. And he's like, this is bad. I need to go tell somebody because I'm a gossiper. And so Ham goes and tells his brothers, check out dad. He's lost it. He is a fish.
officially, like, woo, whoop, whoop, like, he's out of his mind. Like, you got to come see this, you know? And so then they come, they're like, dude, we can't be watching dad. And so they get a blanket, they cover him up, and they're like, what are you thinking, man? And, and that's basically it. The, the, the moral of the story that I've generally heard is if you see somebody who's in sin, you shouldn't go spread that gossip around to everybody. Rather, you should help that person. So actually, the, the, the moral of the story is pretty darn good. And I think it relates very well to what many evangelical preachers deal with. I think one of the reasons why evangelical preachers like that version of the story so much is because, one, it's kind of PG-rated. It's not that bad. Ham doesn't do anything really that bad except make fun of his dad, you know, and which, I mean, you know, who hasn't done that? Uh, but personally, I haven't seen my dad in that state. So, by the way, dad, you're safe on that one. But, but you know, it's, it's not that bad. And also it fits with a lot of what evangelical preachers deal with on a near weekly basis. And that is gossip, right? The spreading of somebody's impropriety to a bunch of people that don't have any business talking about it. So it, it, I think that's one of the reasons why we gravitate toward that, because we're like, yeah, that's not good. But actually, um, there's a lot of thing, ways in which this doesn't make much sense. Because technically, the Bible never shames Noah for getting drunk. God never condemns him for this act. So to say that this is a wrong thing that he did is actually sort of inserting your own uh, viewpoint into scripture God isn't shy of saying when people have done things that are wrong he's not shy of calling out even his best servants like David he's not shy about calling them out for things that are wrong but God doesn't call out Noah for this why why is drunkenness wrong for everybody else but for Noah it's not well here's the issue first off you have to understand the context Noah is stepping into a brand new ecological system like, prior to the flood, the Bible says it never rained, that there was some kind of vault. I think Scripture said there was a vault over the earth, something like, I don't, I'm not smart enough, I don't, I'm not educated enough to know exactly what was going on. All I know is that it didn't rain. Instead, water came up from the ground and watered the earth, which means that when God, just before the flood, God said, I'm going to limit the number of man's days. In other words, people are going to start living shorter lives. And so something changed. Like, our atmosphere right here is not conducive to us living as long as, like, Methuselah or uh, uh, Adam or Eve. That those people recorded in Scripture lived really long, like 900 years, 950 years, nearly 1,000 years. That's bizarre to our thinking. That's like Yoda, you know? I mean, like, what is going on here? How do you live that long? Well, we know that the flood ch systemically changed some things. We understand that, that, that there would be far less oxygen in the air after the flood than there was before the flood. So if God wants to limit the lifespan of humans, he merely has to reduce the amount of oxygen that they're breathing every day. They will age quicker. The amount of barometric pressure in the world would have been greater after the flood. Actually, the amount of carbon in the world would have been uh, much less after the flood, which is one of the reasons why carbon dating doesn't take into account the flood. Because the amount of carbon we have in the atmosphere right now versus the amount we would have had in a, in a pre-flood world is very different. So when Noah stepped out on a mountain at a high elevation, he is lacking oxygen to his brain, which I don't know if you know what that does, but it's, it's like drinking on a plane, which I have not done. But some of you heathens have probably taken a sip or two on a plane, and you get drunk quicker 
at higher altitudes with less oxygen, it, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a medical term for it, but you, you, you get drunk quicker. And so it's very likely that Noah had planted vineyards before, he had made wine before, never gotten drunk, and now for the first time in his life, he can't have five pints. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he's like I, like, I thought I could drink this and I was fine, but now he's in a brand new atmosphere. This would have also probably affected the fermentation process. I mean, so many things are changing and Noah's unaware of it. He just steps out, the world's back together again. He's the only guy on the, him and his kids are the only people on the planet. And so he plants a vineyard. Now, why did he plant a vineyard? This, this, this gets into a little more of the actual passage because to, a, to an ancient Hebrew reading this passage, they would understand what's going on here. God had just commanded Noah and his children to be fruitful and multiply. The same command he gave to Adam. Are we clear? Does everybody know how to be fruitful and multiply? You know how that works, right? Babies come into the world. Yeah, so that's what he told them. Go make babies. And the first thing Noah did is he went planting a vineyard. Why? Because <laughs> throughout Scripture, throughout Scripture, actually, a vineyard and wine is connected with babies making bad English. For instance, uh, for instance, when, when King David, who, are, who, 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 who I told you it's going to be a memorable sermon. See, we've got we to get some teaching inside of you first for you to really understand what's happening. So this is all, this is all preface to the sermon. This is my intro. So when King David, when, when, when King David had had his illicit affair with Bathsheba, and he had got, he found out she was pregnant, King David called in Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, and said, look, I, look, look, he didn't want to get, David didn't want to get caught, so he wanted Uriah to come home from the battle, spend a little time with his wife, so that Uriah would think it was his baby. And so King David said, why don't you come home, go out to the vineyard, spend some time with your wife, and then go back to the battle. Basically, vineyard, it, it's kind of like the ancient version of Netflix and chill. You didn't think you'd hear that in a sermon, did you? But it is, because you can actually watch Netflix, and you can literally just chill. But typically, ladies, if somebody invites you to this event, they are anticipating there will be Netflix, there will be chilling, and there will be something else. And in classic biblical literature, that's very common, because in the Song of Solomon, you try reading a chapter of the Song of Solomon without a vineyard or some kind of vineyard reference being mentioned. It's, it's throughout it because it is interwoven into their culture. And so when God commands Noah, be fruitful and multiply, Noah says, I didn't give me a Netflix account. We're going we're gonna to vineyard and chill. We're going we're gonna to vineyard and chill. That's what we're going to do. And so he plants a vineyard. It's very connected to the previous passage. To us, it doesn't seem connected. We're like, okay, the dude's planting a vineyard. He's got a Netflix account. All right, well, what does that mean? Well, those of us that like are studying this, like you see what it means. Okay, obviously Noah's planning something. He was not planning on getting wasted, by the way. He's planning on something else. The whole context of this is very sexual in nature, which is why it's kind of unlikely that Ham's only sin is that he saw his dad naked and went and told his brothers. In fact, the other three options are more violent than that. A lot more is more of a sexual violence. Um, without getting in, without any of these details, it, it it could be like in Deuteronomy when you uncover your father's nakedness in Deuteronomy. What that means is you sleep with your mom. 
And so this could have been a type of rape that Ham did uh, to his mom or to his uh, stepmom. Uh, it also, most Jewish scholars actually believe that Ham committed sexual violence against his dad. And several point to the fact that he probably even went so far as castrating him. Because if you notice, Noah never has any other kids. God just commanded Noah to be fruitful, multiply, and Noah doesn't have any more kids. Even though he had the vineyard ready, he was good to go, and he doesn't have any more kids. Which could explain why Noah curses Ham's fourth son, because Noah only has three kids, and now Ham will only have three kids. I don't know. But what's interesting, though, is that when you really look at this passage, what you see is actually happening. It's not just uh, somebody who's perverted, which Ham was, whichever he did, any one of those four options. It's it's more violent in nature what Ham is doing. Because after Ham did it, Ham went and told his brother, why would you tell on yourself? Because it's not, he's not trying to keep it a secret. What he's doing is he's trying to usurp his dad. So the real reason for, if it was, you know, castration as the kind of the, the roughest, the, the most violent, or some, some other form of violence, it wasn't just a perversion that Ham had. It was a desire to usurp his dad's authority and become sort of the top dog in the clan. And this would happen actually throughout Scripture, where, where some, an invading king would, would make sure he slept with the concubines of the previous king in order to show his, his dominance and his strength. So this was not just a sexual sin. This was a sin of dominance and usurping Noah's authority. When you, when, when you really read this, this is why Noah is so offended by this. He's so upset by this. And this is why the, the, the curse is so harsh. And the curse is, get this, the curse is Canaan will forever be a servant. So Ham was trying to usurp authority, be in charge, dominate, uh, force himself on his family. And Noah says, because of that, your fourth son will forever be a slave. Interestingly enough, this passage has been used to justify slavery, which is kind of bizarre, because Obviously, it was never God's plan for people to be owned by other people. This particular slavery is a direct result of brutal sin. And sin does produce evil, horrible results. Slavery is one of those evil, horrible results that come out of sin. And so it was never meant to justify, even though uh, slave owners in the South used this passage to justify the, the slaves that they owned and somehow found a way to say that Canaan was black and that the other people are black. Just bizarre things that aren't in Scripture. But that's not what it's about. God is not, you know, he's not okaying slavery. He's not saying that's good. He's saying what Ham has, did, Ham has done is so bad that the result of trying to be in charge of everyone is that you will become a slave to everyone. What goes around comes around. The cup is coming around to you. And now, centuries later, God uses that story as a parable, if you will, as a metaphor for what the Babylonians are doing. It is probably true that they were, uh, you know, living in drunkenness and living in sexual immorality, but that's not the point. The point is that they were intoxicating their neighbors and neighboring nations with wealth and with, and with ideas and with positions in order to enslave them, in order to take advantage of them. And they used their leadership not to help people, not to serve people, but to crush people. And God said this is exactly what Ham did. 
Like this is this is human nature 101, right? There's only four males in the entire world. You got Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They could literally each take a continent. And there's the youngest guy says, Well, I'm not the top dog. I'm not number one. And so he he's I'm telling you, if you think greed will ever be content, if you think it'll ever say this is enough. If you think it'll ever be like, okay, I have enough now, or I am respected enough, or I am uh, happy enough, or I am pleasured enough, or I am... If, if you think greed will ever be content, just look at him. Here's a guy who's got literally, he could have 25% of the world's populate. He could just go to a continent and rule that continent. And just divvy everybody up. And you still got a continent left over, right? Australasia. They just, they just hang out there. It'll be fun. Uh, vacation. And it, well, nobody wants Antarctica. So, you know, I mean, you could just kind of just divvy it all up. Because he's just, and, and no, his greed says, no, I, I need to be number one. There's still two guys, three guys ahead of me. And God says, look, this is the heart that I, that I am so angry at. This is the heart that I'm going to judge. This is the heart that I'm going to, I'm the cup of my right arm, it says. It actually means the cup of my wrath is coming around to you. It's being filled up. And it's coming around to you because the just shall live by faith, not by power plays. This is a perfect election year sermon. I, I think I just feel the, the Lord just, just because in a, in, a, in, in, in a lot of churches, you may not hear this. You may hear who you should vote for or who you should not vote for. You're not going to hear that at City Chapel. I don't care how many emails I get. You're not going to hear that at City Chapel because that's not. The just shall live by faith, not by power plays, not by political weight and might, not by strength. The just shall live by faith, not by forcing your beliefs on somebody else or forcing your way of life on somebody else. The just shall live by faith, not by their votes. So indeed, vote. Absolutely. I think that's, a, that's an action that God is going to hold us accountable for. Pray about it. Seek God about who you should vote for, and then go for it. But then, like after you vote, then go worship God. After you vote, then go raise your kids to be followers of God. After you vote, then go give ten percent of your tithe to God, ten percent of your money to God. After you vote, then go submit yourself under the mighty hand of God, because no matter who wins the election, the just shall live by faith. There's a lot of scare tactics. Well, so-and-so gets elected, then this will happen. Then if so-and-so gets elected, then, then this will happen. Well, I don't care what happens. The just shall live by faith. Aren't you concerned about churches losing their freedom? No. Like, 2020, we've seen our freedom to meet, our freedom to meet without face masks, our freedom to gather, to hug, to, to embrace people. We've seen several of our freedoms put on hold. And what have we seen in the middle of this? We've seen the kingdom of God advancing. We've seen the kingdom of God growing. We've seen people getting closer to God. We have more people in small group right now. Like, like just, just numerically, more people are attending small groups right now than attended City Chapel in the first year that we were a church. So we opened our doors. We're in a theater. We're killing ourselves to try to get something going. And yet, I mean, I'm telling you, there are more opportunities don't you realize we've had our freedom as a church for centuries? And as a church, we've been going like this. 
before the pandemic, 2,400 churches a month closed their doors. Before the pandemic, when we started City Chapel, Ro and I read this statistic, and it was not encouraging. 90% of all pastors, that's senior pastors, associate pastors, youth pastors, you name it, 90% of all pastors who are currently employed by a church, salaried by a church, will not retire as a pastor. Meaning they will quit and do something else. They'll go sell insurance. They'll go be middle school teachers. They'll go do something else other than what they said they were called to do. They will get so discouraged, so burnt out, so tired of people's nonsense and gossip and blah, blah, blah. And they'll get so fed up with it that they will leave the ministry. 90%. You keep your freedom. I'll keep my faith. The just shall live by faith. If I got freedom, cool. That's wonderful. I like freedom. I like to drive around and free things as much as the next guy. I love freedom. I love, I love it. But the just shall live by faith. Do you know where the church is thriving right now in the world? In China. China. That's right. You've got to get permission to sneeze in China. Like, you can't just. And, and if you are religious in any way, I mean, hundreds of, of pastors and Muslim clerics are being taken to concentration camps in northern China for the past three and a half, four years. And trying to convert them to this, this state nonsense, this, this agnostic nonsense. I, I'm telling you, and the church is growing. People are getting saved. They're meeting in the back of little buildings and sharing bits of scriptures. And, and million, the largest church in America is not Joel Osteen's church. It's really not. That's not a knock on Joel. I mean, go Joel. But these guys in China, like if one church, I forget how many millions of members it has. Like millions. This is mind-blowing. But, but, but they don't have freedom. No, you don't need freedom. You need faith. The just shall live by faith. I'm afraid Americans have got so in love with their freedom, so in love with their constitution. It wasn't written by God. It was written by fallen human beings. And yes, it's the best form of government, I think. But has it produced revival? Is it the form of government that Christ is coming back for? No, he's not coming back for a form of government. He's coming back for a bride, for a church that's full of faith from various different governments, from various languages and people groups and ethnicities, and it's not white and it's not black. and It's, it's not left or right. The just shall live by faith. And so this is, this is the problem, that Ham is looking for a power play. He's looking for weakness in his opponent so that he can take over and exert his power and finally get to his destiny. You don't get to your destiny by making it happen. The just shall live by faith. Faith in what? Faith in my own abilities to make something happen? No, faith in the sovereign hand of God over my life, that he has declared something over me. He believes something about me. He has called me for such a time as this. I'm living under him. This usurping spirit, this power play spirit, this take advantage of what you can take advantage of, get what you can while you can move forward no matter what the cost is to my integrity. This doesn't work. In the kingdom of God. It just doesn't, it doesn't fit. The just shall live by faith. If you want to see faith, you look at Shem and Japheth. Shem and Japheth saw their dad in, in a moment of weakness, whatever that moment was. And they chose to help him. This is true 
faith. See, people who have faith, people who really have faith, they have a power that's not political, and it's not uh, persuasive, and it's not overt, but it is a power to actually serve others. This is what Japheth and, uh, Shem and Japheth do. They serve their father. This is what God expected of the Babylonians. Because this is what power is. This is what leadership is. Leadership is not to be dominated, not to dominate somebody. It's to serve somebody. And this is why God calls them out. He says, look, you have, you have destroyed. You have shed human blood. He starts there because that's the most sacred thing. But he doesn't just end there. He says, you destroyed Lebanon. Usually when Scripture talks about Lebanon, it's talking about the forest of Lebanon, because Lebanon was mostly a forested area. He's talking about the way they treated the earth. He says, you just came in and just bulldozed everything down. You just, you just you didn't use it for my glory. You didn't use it to build houses for people. You just took it down. You just destroyed You just burned it up. You destroyed Lebanon, and he says you destroyed or you killed the animals. Well, you, you like, this, this, this is a true... Our White House, the one White House we lived in, and uh, it was actually a parsonage for a church. We lived right in the, the, the parking lot of a church. And um, for Easter, my, uh, I think it was my grandpa, I think Grandpa Fleming uh, got me, I don't think he got, I don't know what he got for Pete, but anyway, he got me a fluffy little white bunny. Um, and it was this cute little, it's a wonderful Easter thing, right? For some reason, bunnies are Easter thing. I don't know. And so he got me this beautiful, fluffy little white bunny. And he helped us build this cage out the back. And it was a, like all covered and it's an outdoor cage. And, um, and I remember Easter Sunday, you know, we got uh, our baskets and then um, this, this cute bunny. And uh, so we put the bunny outside in the cage. We were feeding it, taking care of it and stuff. And, and then the bunny died. So it's kind of antithetical to Easter supposed to come back to life on Easter. <laughs> but literally, within, I don't know the exact time frame, my mom and dad might know, it was like within a week. I mean, I just remember like the next day, he's dead, he gone, and he just, he just died. I don't know what happened, it's a defective bunny. He just, he just died. And so, and so my parents felt really bad about that, so they bought me another one. And um, this one, because, you know, it looked exactly like the other one. So, you know, I was a church kid, so because Resurrection Easter, I named it Lazarus. You thought I was going to say I named it Jesus, but I thought that'd be kind of blasphemous to be, you know, feeding a carrot stick to Jesus. That wouldn't work out so well. So we named it Lazarus, the other guy who was raised from the dead, because he looked just like him. And I'm like, yeah, he's come back from the dead. Well, I don't know how long Lazarus, the real Lazarus, lived after he was raised from the dead. I have a feeling he lived a long time, because my bunny just live forever. I mean, I don't think he died until I was like 18, 18 or 19. I mean, seriously, a long time. Like the thing just wouldn't die. Like, and it was, it got to be so fat. Like this bunny, I'm serious. Like I'm not even lying. Peter could testify. Like from, from nose to fluffy little tail, he was about this long, but then he was about this tall when he just, he just, it was like a big ball of fluff with little legs. He didn't hop. 
he kind of rolled, like lurched. He lurched forward. And <laughs> you couldn't even play with him because he, he could barely, like, he couldn't he could go in the yard. He just kind of like did a little, it's kind of like, like this, you know. It's like, okay, well. And so he's, and, 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 and we're in Michigan, right? And so it gets really cold. It gets, you know, zero degrees. It's nothing in the winter to be at zero for weeks. I mean, it just stays at zero, negative numbers, stuff like that at night, especially. And so his water, his poor little water bowl would freeze entirely. So I'd have to go out there with my gloves, open the little door, and take the thing and just bash it up against the cinder block. We had these cinder block, um, and just bash it, bash it, to loosen it, and then, and then it drops out, you know. And so next to the bunny cage, like all winter, there were these piles of just ice blocks, these little circular ice blocks. And uh, so, but I was not really into animals. I, I you know, I, I never have been. I thought he was cute when I was six, but by the time I was like 12 or 14, it's like, come on, like how long is this thing going to live? How long am I going to have to take care of this guy? Like what's going on here? So every day you got to go feed him and water him. And so there were many times I'm sitting in the living room, it's negative five degrees outside, and mom's like, well, did you feed Lazarus yet today? I'm like, oh. No, I didn't. I forgot about it. So it was 11 o'clock at night, so I go out there, bash the, the ice thing, you know, try to get the water out. Yeah, he survived on, like, his saliva. I don't know how he lived so long. Like, so, but, but, but my dad would always quote uh, Proverbs. Let me, let me, let me see. I, I, th I think I have it on the screen for you. Proverbs 12.10. The righteous care for the needs of their animals, but the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel. And he'd always quote that, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. But it really is, it, it really is true. Like, uh, uh, Madden and I, Madden, my oldest, she's 11, we went and did some extra work. She made some extra money, and the first thing she did with the money was she tithed on the money, because that's what you do. But then she said she wanted to give some money to Paws um, Rescue Shelter in, 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 in Kyle. And I was like, really? Are you sure you don't want to give more to the church? And she's like, no, I, I, I'm a pastor. This is like, we got needs, right? We're feeding kids. We're feeding families. I know you pause. I'm like, well, all right, what do you want to do? So she's, so her and her mom call pause. They're like, yeah, we need these supplies, these supplies, blah, blah, blah. We go to Walmart. She spends like $45, spent twice as much of her tithe, gave God 10%, gave the animals 20 two for whatever it was i don't know and i'm like well okay well so but no it really is and it's and it's, it's something i'm proud of her about because it's a sign that you have a love for god in your heart when you are kind to animals it really is true because animals are completely dependent on humans like they they th how you treat animals reflects what's in your heart some of you are like oh i kicked the dog this morning i'm like you need to go repent for that. You need to go repent because, because seriously, animals can't promote you. Animals can't help you. Like Jesus even said, the way that you bless people who can't bless you back, this is what faith is. Because faith is saying, I'm going to be kind to you, not because I can get something from you, but because somebody above me is watching me. Somebody is watching me. That's what, God, that's what my, my dad was basically saying when he read this Proverbs to me every day. The righteous care for the needs of their animals, but the wicked, uh, the kindest acts of the wicked are cruel because God is watching. And, and this is one of the reasons why, why exerting political dominance over people is never going to change anybody. 
Because kindness doesn't come from, oh, they said I should be kind. Kindness doesn't come from, oh, the law says I should be kind. Kindness doesn't come from the law. It doesn't come from a police officer. You get kindness because you are aware that somebody over you is watching you when nobody else is watching you. And when you can't get anything from this animal, you are still responsible to somebody up there. This is why I, I this is another reason why I don't take the evangelical version of Ham's sin because I've too often used uh, heard it used in defense actually of some pretty weird stuff like there's been there've been uh, actual stories I've heard where people are in churches and they see like a leader like Noah was the leader of his family they see a leader caught in some kind of sin some kind of impropriety some kind of something and then the leadership comes and talks to them and says hey you know you need to cover this guy's sin in other words, you need to not talk about this. Like, we're going to handle it secretly and whatever. And, and if you're, a, one, that's not how City Chapel rolls. Two, that's not how Scripture teaches. Nowhere in Scripture does it say you should cover the sin of your leadership and that your leadership shouldn't be responsible and accountable to the people that they lead. In fact, in Titus, it says the exact opposite. It says it says a leader should be blameless, not 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 immune like immunity and blamelessness are two very different things so i'm not it's not that you can't bring a charge against me it's that you won't because you don't have any charges to bring against me like that's the goal that's the purpose of a, of a leader and so man if you're a part of a church like that you need to get out of that church today and uh come to city chapel um <laughs> but or there are other good churches in this area. But seriously, if you leave City Chapel and you go to another church and, and you see something a little fishy and they tell you, hey, you just need to sort of just keep this quiet. You don't want to gossip about this. You don't want to. Well, gossiping is one thing, but dealing with it is another. You must deal with sin. You don't cover it up. You don't pretend like it's not there because it's embarrassing to that leader or he'd have to step down or whatever. Like, that's not how this works. And so and so because even that, that's another power play. It's another attempt to hold on to power because I have a position. Anybody who tells you, I have a position, they can't talk to me like that, just walk away. This is not, the just shall live by faith, not by a position. The just shall live by faith, not because pastor knighted me. The just shall live by faith, not because you have a diploma or a degree. The just shall live by faith, not because you have uh, some kind of initial in front of your name, prophet so-and-so. That's not important. The just shall live by faith, not by titles. The just shall live by faith. So this is why, like, it, humanity in the world will say, well, I will exert my power, I will exert my force, I will get done what I want to get done. I will make everybody believe what I believe. I'll cancel everybody who doesn't. And I'll deal with it forcefully, and I'll, I'll step up, and this is the way that it's going to be. But that doesn't change hearts. You can actually make everybody fall in line if you want, through threats and through intimidation. But God is watching. God is watching. And this is what God says. God says, look, the cup of my wrath is coming around to you. Why? Because, because God has been watching. You're not just watching right now. God was in the tent with Ham. Which is why faith empowers me to be kind. Faith empowers me to live right when nobody, when I think nobody's watching because God is watching. Not only that, faith is, is, is helpful for guys like Ham, but also helpful for guys like Noah. Because Noah doesn't need to get revenge because God was watching. You can forgive people because God is watching. 
You can release people from ever having to pay you back because God is watching. You, you, you can live with confidence because God is watching. In fact, the Babylonians would, would actually get a demonstration of this in Daniel chapter 5. Uh, I have this passage for you. Daniel chapter 5, you have the last king of Babylon, who is the son of Nebuchadnezzar, the king which is currently with the back, the one who's roaming throughout the world. And, and, and his son becomes the last king of Babylon. And on the night that he's killed, God shows up. Why? Because God's been watching. And, and, and this, this, this disembodied hand, this giant hand, comes from heaven as he's partying, as he's drinking, as he's drunk, as he's making all of his, his servants and all of his lords drunk. I think there was over a thousand people there in this big party. And he's celebrating these other gods we're going to get into next week, this idolatry. And this hand comes down and writes on the wall. And this is what it writes. It writes, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Peres. And he doesn't understand this. Uh, probably because of the way it was written. Most scholars believe the way it would have been written would have been hard to understand because this is still uh, Aramaic. Plus, it doesn't really explain what it's saying. And so he calls in Daniel. Daniel gives the interpretation. This is what he says. Daniel says, Mene means God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Mene means to number, to count. Tekel says you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Tekel means to weigh. So there's two different nouns here that Daniel interprets as verbs, actually. And they're both terms of measurement. To count, one, two, three, four, five, six, and to weigh. How heavy is this? And he says, this is what God has been doing with you. Just because God is silent over a country, just because he's silent over sin, just because he doesn't jump in and shut it down, doesn't mean he's not counting. Doesn't mean he's not weighing. In fact, every, everyone in the world is, they don't realize it, but they're on a scale. You ladies are like, oh man, I was trying to escape that thing. Not that kind of scale. He's not weighing your belly fat. That's not what he's weighing. What is he weighing? He's weighing your faith. He's weighing your actions. He's weighing your heart. He's trying. He's not looking on the outside. He doesn't care what your body looks like. He's looking at the heart. And he's been weighing this king. This king thought he was living, making his own decisions, and he was. He was on the stage of his own kingdom, but the very stage he was on was actually a scale. And God was weighing him. And he was found wanting. He came up short. He didn't have anything of substance in his life. All the gold that he accumulated didn't weigh anything on this scale. Silver doesn't weigh anything. Cars don't weigh anything. Houses don't weigh anything. Happiness doesn't weigh anything. Your sense of peace doesn't weigh anything on this scale. The only thing that is weighty on the scale is how much faith you have in God. And he had zero faith. He said, look, you got a bunch of fluff, but no faith. You got a bunch of stuff, but no faith. You have been weighed on the scales, and you've been found wanting. And Perez means your kingdom is divided, because Perez can mean division. It can also be another word for the Persians who were about to assassinate him that very night. If you don't think God isn't in control, 
You don't think he can't take people out whenever he wants and raise up rulers whenever he wants and bring down kingdoms whenever he wants. He can't. And the truth is Daniel has been living all these years as a slave in Babylon. He was taken as a slave. He was about 11, 10 years old at the time of, of, of Habakkuk. As Habakkuk wrote his book, and then he was taken to Babylon as a slave. He lived under King Nebuchadnezzar. He saw what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He was witness, and, and he actually spoke into Nebuchadnezzar's life. And now Nebuchadnezzar's son is turning away from honoring God, and he's dishonoring God. He's completely renouncing his faith. He's going all in with his pleasure and with his toys and with his fun. And then he says, look, you've been found wanting. You, you, you didn't realize it, but you were being tested. Every instance was a test. Every pet you owned, come on, somebody, was a test. You didn't realize it, but every, every, every way you treated every single waiter was a test. The way you treated every flight attendant was a test. You thought you were just living your life. You thought you were just doing your thing. But actually, it was all accumulating. The way I was looking for faith, I was looking for the result of faith in God. God wasn't, he wasn't judging him the entire time. He wasn't looking to bash him. He wasn't looking to pounce on him, but he was weighing him. And Daniel could live as a slave without freedom, with purpose and faith, because he knew that God was watching. That's actually what it says in the New Testament when it talks about slaves. You know, the New Testament admonishes slaves to remain slaves. That's interesting. And the reason? It says because God's watching. And he says, you will receive your full reward from your true master. And then, in the same passage, the New Testament, Paul addresses slave owners. And he says, hey, don't treat them like slaves, like the world does. Treat them like brothers, because God is watching. And how you treat people who you think can't, can't help you shows whether or not you really trust God or not. How you try to rush to defend your name to people who you think can help you. How you attempt to justify yourself to others shows that you haven't really accepted the fact that God is your judge and God is watching. If you really believe that God was watching and that his version, his scale, was the only important scale in your life, you'd be far less to try to correct everybody else's scales. You wouldn't, you wouldn't run around and try to adjust everybody else's opinion of you to make sure that... Because the truth is, you can, if you try hard enough, you can make almost everybody like you. You can, you can say the right thing when you're around the right person. You can say this when you're around that person. You can post stuff like that, and you can not post stuff like that. And you can maneuver things. But even after you've convinced everybody to judge you well, you still stand under the judgment of God. And the question is, how much do you weigh in his sight? How much faith do you have? How much, how much, how much of the fruit? This is the thing. Kindness is the fruit of the spirit. So it's not a habit you develop. It's a, it's an effect of having faith in God alone. So you might be watching today and you're like, I don't have that. I need that. Let's pray. You might be here in the room today. You say, I need more of that. Maybe I don't have that either. I don't have enough faith. The, the scale, I've been losing weight on my faith. I got my, 
I got my pandemic 15 or whatever they call it. It's now like pandemic 30 because it just keeps going. Yeah, I got that. I'm gaining here, but I'm losing here. Well, look, you've come to the right place. The difference between you and Belshazzar, who was the king at the time, is that Belshazzar completely turned his back on God. If you're watching this, if you stuck around to 1125, you haven't completely turned your back on God. You still have some faith. We can work, he can work with that. He can work with that. A mustard seed, you don't have to have much. It's just, just a little bit. He can, he can take that. He can multiply that. Look, he is, he wants us, like, I, I, I know I talk about being kind to animals and being kind to people and all that kind of thing. That's because it's a reflection of him. When he is kind to us, we can do nothing for him. We are creatures. And yet he loves us greatly. He laid down his life for us. For people that couldn't help him at all. That couldn't add one thing to him. Couldn't make him any better or any more happy than he already was. He was already as happy as anyone could possibly be. And then he loved us, not because he could get something from us. But because this is what real leadership is. This is what real love is. This is what real kindness is. So would you, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. If you're watching, you can close your eyes, bow your head, however you like to pray. Uh, But I I do think it requires a response. I think this kind of uh, message requires a response on our part. To, one, to receive that love if you've never received it to say okay i'll receive that i'm not going to try to become worthy i'm going to admit that i'll never be worthy of his love and i'll just receive his love but two to step into this this faith that i'm talking about that goes beyond just being a good person that goes beyond just boating well or whatever you think is well that goes beyond getting people to think of you in a better light it goes into a realization that god is watching me every moment of the day and how does my life stack up in in that realization how does it fit there because when you have peace with god then you have peace across the board but when you don't have peace with god and you don't have peace in the secret place then everything else is just you're faking you're trying to make yourself believe that you have peace So you must come back to this place, this place where only God knows and only God sees. He knows your intention, he knows your motives, and that's not always a good thing. I mean, it doesn't feel good. But he sees it. What does he see? What's on his scale? And that's what Jesus said, will the Son of Man find faith when he returns? Will there be faith on the scale? If you're you're wanting an increase in faith. If you're low and you're needing more faith, you just raise your hand wherever you're sitting, right here in the room or in the living room. Raise your hand and say, that's me. I, I'm in need of an increase of faith. I'm in need of the grace of God. This is what, this is what the man said. He said, I believe, Lord, have my unbelief. So I got some faith, but there's this, there's this blockage in my mind and in my heart. There's something I'm short on this faith. I don't think my scale is where it should be, where it was. Father, we come before you right now.